This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. No matter what marketplace or church-based ministry to which you are called, if you have a family, then your first ministry responsibility is your family. Today's executive workplace is intense with long hours and many demands. How would you feel at the end of your career if you receive significant accolades for tremendous business success? and then lost your children in the process. Our special guest today has created resources to enable you to raise godly children who become true ambassadors for Christ, even into their adult lives. You can decide to create a living leadership legacy at work and at home. Stay tuned to find out more. First, let me tell you about our special guest, Terrence Chapman, from soda bottle recycling entrepreneur at the age of six to senior executive leader responsible for billions of dollars for the Coca-Cola company, Terrence Chapman has served in senior executive leadership roles with Johnson & Johnson, Citibank, and Coca-Cola. He has also held significant leadership roles in the Christian nonprofit world to include serving as the president of the two nonprofit entities, the John Maxwell Leadership Foundation and Equip Leadership. Both nonprofit groups, through their distinct program offerings, support John Maxwell's vision of adding value to people who multiply value to others. The result is to strengthen leaders organizations, communities, and nations around the world. For the past decade, Terrence Chapman has been president and CEO of Victorious Family, a family discipleship ministry that equips and empowers family champions to develop mature and thriving followers of Christ. Victorious Family is strategically positioned on five continents to reach millions of families with its step-by-step family discipleship process model. The author of the five-star best-selling book, Do Your Children Believe? Terrence offers a proven step-by-step process to create a personalized family discipleship plan that works for families, including those with grown children. A Chicago native and graduate of the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, Terrence is known for transformational leadership, healthy organizational cultures, creative organizational change, innovation, strategic thinking, and meaningful business and ministry results. Terrence, welcome to The Voice of Leadership and also to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. I am so delighted you're joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's it's just an honor to be here. And uh, thanks for, I mean, I, I see my mother sending the bio and uh, uh, with all those favorable things to say. So I'm honored to be here today. Well, you know what, Terrence, really, there's a whole lot more we could say. <laughs> and that would just mean two shows. <laughs> so, <laughs> because you really do have quite a track record and quite a history of really adding value in so many places. And we want to unpack a little bit of that today, even as we're really talking about the mission of Victoria's family. So the first thing I want to ask you about, I'm just going to jump right in. Terrence, I know that there seems to be a crisis in Christian families today with many children not developing and not maintaining a robust relationship with Christ. What do you think is happening? What is the cause of this crisis? You know, we can take that to so many different responses. I think to sum it up is we see a moral and spiritual crisis within our nation and particularly in the home. And I would say, when I look at that and I examine all the many causes, there's many. There's one that comes to mind. 83% of our parents 
they feel totally inadequate to raise their kids uh, up in the Lord. They want to do the right thing. They want to see strong, healthy, flourishing families, but they feel inadequate to do so. And we simply can't teach what we don't know. And as a result of that, we've abdicated the responsibility to someone else, i.e. the church, Christian schools, Christian camps, etc., because we feel inadequate. So our big challenge is that parents feel inadequate and we're seeing a moral and spiritual decay over the last few decades. And as a result of that, we're seeing impact within our family. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's important to know what the problem is before we get to the solutions, if you will. And even before we unpack some of the solutions that I know that you've come up with, with your family and that you've curated along the way, I know that it also takes leadership to start a major movement like Victoria's family and to move the needle on this kind of crisis that we're talking about, discipleship in the family. So first, I would like to talk to you a little bit about your own leadership journey. We know that at six years old, you started as an entrepreneur already <laughs> as far as the recycling of bottles. Then you went on to corporate executive and you've also been serving as an executive in nonprofit ministries as well. So tell us about that journey. Just a little bit of maybe the Cliff Notes highlights of what you've done, where you've been, and what it's meant to you. Well, you know, the, we're always motivated by something. And, you know, when I was six years old, I was motivated by the love of candy. You know, I still have a little sweet tooth <laughs> to my demise. But, you know, mom and I were walking home from church one day and I decided, you know, I want some candy. And, and mom said, sure, you can have some candy as long as you pay for it. Uh, like six years old, I, I'm broke. I don't have any money, right? And I just dropped that quarter in the in the basket at church, you know, for time. But I did. I, I watched uh, others, right, return what we call in Chicago pot bottles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were getting five, 10 cents each. I can't remember. Probably inflation. You probably get 10 cents now. But uh, we get five, 10 cents each. I knew we we had a lot of soda uh, within our home and a lot of bottles to return. And so I said, hey, would you mind if I begin to take these bottles back and get redemption uh, and recycle them? Right. She said, Absolutely. Uh, and we began to do that. And I realized something else. I in Chicago, you know, homes are next to each other, apartment buildings and so forth. And I said, Hey, if we're drinking a lot of soda, they're drinking a lot of soda. Let me let me go and make the same request. And people would do that. And and I tell you, it wasn't just a little bit of something. I mean, I was, you know, bringing in some pretty significant dollars on a monthly basis. But they took also, my parents took an opportunity to do some training as well. Right. They said 10% has to go towards tide. And I didn't, you know, understand all of that, but they took a, you know, 10 dimes and put them on a the table and said, this dime goes here to the church. And my father's a big savings guy. So he says 10% has to go to savings. And he took 10 cents and put it over there. And he said, you still have 80 cents. And I, I said, hey, that's pretty good, right? I mean, I'm, I'm rolling in cash. I can buy what I want. And, and my friends were getting in on the action. Uh, and then as I, my territory began to kind of get large, uh, and they wanted a piece of the action. I sold them. I divvied up my territory it was that large, divvied it up to them and I charged them 10%. So now I had a franchise recycling business. So that's how I got started. It was so much fun. Uh, you know, we could do all types of stuff. We were motivated. Uh, but anyway, we, that's how we started. Now, interesting enough, some 20 years later, I would be one of the lead officers at the Coca-Cola company. And so from early on, he gave me a love uh, for the marketplace. And I had an opportunity to just, you know, be a part of that, learn different experiences, not only from leaders, but from my father as well. And and so that grew uh, me into the marketplace leader uh, over the years. You know, I was saying earlier, I said, did you actually start the franchise part of your business at six years old also? Was yeah, that six, later? seven years old. Yeah. I mean, I had oh, to wow. I had to recoup that 10%. You're amazing. So you really were an entrepreneur right from the beginning. And I love the way your parents were going with that bent and teaching you additional life lessons along the way. One of the things you said that I thought was pretty powerful is that you personally were motivated by wanting to eat some candy. So when you think about people in the workplace today, people are working because they're motivated by something too. So how did you use this insight and understanding to even lead in the organizations that you were leading, Coca-Cola and the other places as well, Johnson & Johnson and the other industries? Well, quickly, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s, 70s. And that was a time of great challenge. 
my father was actually a union president. He was a union president for his organization for 43 years. What was unique about my father, he was very relational. He never had a strike on his watch in 43 years. He also started to credit union for the company. So he was in a leadership role, but he would never accept a leadership position because of different issues within society at that time. But he became one of my greatest mentors, and he taught me some valuable lessons uh, that even apply today. He said, number one, everyone in this organization has intrinsic value. Everyone from the president to the janitor, they have intrinsic value. And why is that important? Because that is a principle that stuck with me throughout my career. He said, it's never about the brand. It's never about that. It's about the people. And the people are the ones that make the brand a reality. And so imagine when you're young like this, you're sitting into, in meetings and you're hearing this from your father. You're in a society that's being challenged, especially around you know, certain people. And your father is saying, here's what gets me. Eight years old, nine years old. He sits me on the couch, coming home from probably, you know, he worked the morning shift. For 44 years, getting up at four or five o'clock in the morning to work the shift, he come home and soot all over his body and face had to use this so-called lava soap to scrub it off. That's how dirty he was. But then he would leave and he'd come home and he says, Terrence, the marketplace doesn't have to be the same in your lifetime as it is in mine. He says, you have an opportunity to transform the marketplace. Now, when you're a young guy, eight years old, you're like, what are you talking about, dad? I mean, what, I, what am I going to do? He says, you know, don't worry about how much money you make and positions and all that. He says, have a purpose that's greater than yourself and let it be centered around people and make a difference in their life. He says, because what they do impact all of their life, impact their home life, impact their kids' life and their futures, et cetera. So this is the wisdom that he's given me as a young man. And he's saying, go into the marketplace and make a difference. So that becomes my motivator. Never position, never power, never money. It was to make a difference within the marketplace and bring people to a point of opportunity in their life that they could make a difference, not only in, in business, but in society as well. That was my challenge. That was my motivator. That is really powerful. So your father really gave you something incredibly valuable. He shared with you values in life about valuing people, recognizing people have purpose, holding out a possibility of vision and opportunity for people in the workplace. And he said, don't just look at me and just the day-to-day -day things I'm doing. Your life may look quite different. However, those values we're still the same. So how did you leverage those? How did you use those in the workplace? And even that hunger, like I said, you had it for candy, but people in the workplace have it for something else. How did you leverage all that that your father shared with you and your own experiences as a six-year-old entrepreneur? So keep in mind the driver, right? That people have intrinsic value. I can, how do I impact the marketplace, give people greater opportunities than maybe they would realize otherwise. So how do you do that? He says, here's the other way. If you're going to really transform anything, one, you have to start with yourself. Transformation starts with you. It's your mindset, it's your posture, it's your position, your alignment, or you're aligned with values and goals and so forth. Secondly, he says, if you're going to change an organization, change is very difficult. It's hard to do that from the outside throwing bricks in. You have to be around the table having healthy debate, and we're simply not around the table. So how do you get a place at the table when you do earn a place at the table? Make sure that you make a difference. So the, remember, that's my driver. That's the foundation, right? And it's kind of like what John Maxwell talks about. He says, you know, leaders see things that other people don't see. They hear things that other people don't hear. They do things that other people don't do. Uh, they say things that other people don't say. True leaders, they see something that other people ordinarily don't see. Although my father never, you know, received an MBA or doctor, all this stuff, my father received on-the-job leadership training. Absolutely. He, yeah. So I'm hearing you talk about, again, vision. I'm hearing you talk about inspiration. 
and what people can do that maybe they hadn't thought of before or maybe they hadn't seen. And so they see even a greater reason to be in the workplace and to contribute to the greater mission because it's also addressing something they're interested in. So it's like a both and. Yes, I'm here for the company. I'm also here for myself. I'm also here for my family. And they get a chance to live that out. So you were very blessed to have a father that was wise enough to transfer that wisdom to you in that way. So you spent a lot of time out there in various business enterprises. So how would you say that even corporate America shaped your own life and career. We talked about now how your father shaped you. So you were shaping corporate America. How did corporate America shape you? And how did you also navigate what I would call the typical pitfalls in corporate life? Mm-hmm. So let me take you to my first position, right? So I'm graduating from University of Illinois and I'm employed by Johnson and Johnson. And in 1982, one of the greatest crises that ever happened in this nation consumer products companies happened. In September 1982, seven people lost their lives due to tainted cyanide capsules of Tylenol. That happened in Chicago, Illinois, which happens to be my territory. (laughs) Okay, This young student coming out three months, a week before training, I was supposed to go to Dallas that week and get trained at my orientation training. This crisis hit. Uh, James Byrne, who was the mayor of Chicago at that time, gave McNeil Consumer Products was just a subsidiary of Johnson Johnson, seven days to pick up every Tylenol product in the city of Chicago, whether it be food, drug, mass merchandises, homes, et cetera. Seven days we had to do that. And so the story is a long story, but you know, strategy was placed around that, people and so forth. But for some reason, they left this young executive in the territory to navigate the plans that were being created. I have no idea why, but they trusted me with that and said, Terrence, there's nothing you can do that we can't course correct. But here's what you need to say, coach me and train me. I tell you that story because I learned some valuable lessons from that crisis and other crises in my corporate life. The uh, CEO at that time was Dr. James Burke with Johnson & Johnson. And I remember the conversations that we were having strategic discussions. He says, first of all, when people ask for how much money we're going to spend, what are we going to do? So forth, we lost 94% of our market share in 48 hours. So you got to understand the crises and safety. So packaging didn't exist back then, but this man had a vision. He said, we're going to come back. We're going to rebuild, retube and re-engineer this company. And it's going to be greater than ever. And we're going to make a statement within the consumer products industry. In fact, the reason that we have safety seal packaging today is because of that 1982 incident. Everything became safety seal. In fact, it was so safety seal, you barely could get into a bottle of Tylenol. Uh, but anyway, that, so I'm listening, I'm looking and I'm watching this guy and he's, and he's saying something that kind of links up with what my father is saying. He's saying, first of all, if you look at the credo that's in Brunswick, New Jersey, where Johnson Johnson headquarters is, In that credo, it says nothing is more important than our customer. Nothing, no one is more important than our vendors. No one is more important. And so you go down the list and he says, it's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And the right thing is to service our customers, even if our brand goes away. We're going to set the standard. Well, long story short, in three months, not only did we recapture the 94% market share that we lost, we exceeded it. And I saw this man reposition, lead in such a way where people had intrinsic value over shareholder value. So there I get it. I get a chance to see it. The similar chance to see it years later. And I finally realized there's some secret to leadership. And that one main secret that I think has propelled my career is that other people have more intrinsic value for me to lead than myself. And what if I can lead them in a way that lifts them up? You know what happens to me as a leader? I'm lifted. Absolutely. Not because I'm trying to do that for that reason, but the company recognizes people who can build teams and develop people, drive the bottom line essentials, which I knew how to do, planning, strategy, all of that. But guess what? to work through people, empower people, truly empower them, 
to motivate them, to work, train them and coach them and, and see and really desire for them to be successful. Oh man, they'll knock down walls for you. And today there's 14 individuals that's leading top companies because we invested in them and they're making a difference. Yeah, that is so powerful. You know, it's funny, Terrence. I have talked about the Tylenol story a number of times on the podcast. Of course, I did not know that you were part of it. So this is wonderful. <laughs> You're here to tell the story in real life, meaning you were there when it all happened. And, you know, I see some similar threads. Your father told you it's all about people and valuing people. And your solution also said this is more about saving lives, valuing people, even if it costs us market share cost us money or whatever we have to do. You even said, even if the company has to go out of business. So you were already primed to make decisions in line with the values that your father had already laid in place. And apparently the leaders in Johnson & Johnson already saw that in you. So they weren't afraid of you being in charge. And if you were to misstep, they knew they had a safety net, you know, ready to catch you and to have you go in the right direction. So it's interesting that in all of these businesses, you see that common thread going through. And then as you build and develop people and teams, as you say, then the organization is lifted up. You get lifted up, not by trying to be lifted up. It's just a result of doing the right thing. I, I think that's, those are very powerful leadership lessons that apply to any business that anyone is in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so many more. I mean, of course, you're going to learn skills. Uh, I would recommend everyone, I don't care what position you're in, is learn economics. You know, learn how to value a business and, and evaluate a business. So you understand their, their income statements and balance sheets and all that. It's very important that you understand the bottom line. I, I always used to say, once we get beyond the financial statements, everything else is marketing. <laughs> you know, so you got to understand that bottom line. That's, that's the what, what is versus the what if. A lot of times as leaders, we like to focus on the what if. But I always have to understand the what is before I can understand the potential of what if. So that'd be one is, and we call that discovery, right? And understanding what drive, what are the essential drivers of that organization of the people? The other thing is when I, when I look at all of this uh, and you truly value people and you truly want that organization to be successful in whatever way that's deemed to be successful as a marketplace leader, we have a responsibility and a great privilege to lead others. And leading others is not just what we say, it's also in what we do, how we model that behavior. How much do we care for others? How much do we even sacrifice and surrender, maybe to the bottom line, as a result of doing the right thing, right? I, I've always found if you do the right thing, it's going to come back three or fourfold. I mean, I remember a time uh, at, at Citibank, you know, we were going to one of the greatest crises that this nation has ever seen was actually in the 80s financial crisis. The second greatest crisis compared to the Great Depression. I mean, the banking system had totally imploded. Uh, but yet most people at that time, the last thing in the old, you know, people used to do is kind of cut people. Now, the first thing they do is cut people. You know, they used to find a way in order just to keep people employed because people coming out of the Great Depression, they, they understood that, right? They sat in those soup lines and they, they had everything and lost everything, right? So when you, when you grow up in that mentality, people are important to you. And so now we're in this society, we, you know, we, it, it, what, it's, it's the quit. I'm quitting. I don't even tell you about it. You might even get an email. You might get a text message, all of this stuff. We have devalued relationships in the marketplace. And we look at the bottom line as the driver. I'm suggesting it's not the driver. Of course, we're in business for shareholder equity. Okay. So let's not get that wrong. Right. However, the drivers of that, Technology is also driven through people, and it's the people business that we should be in. And so I would just say focus on that. Focus on the core purpose of who you are and what you're doing that's critical. I would say focus on, you know, what's really important. Focus on the who, not the what. And those things will carry you through tough times, crisis times, change. And believe me right now, coming out of the pandemic, we are in a season of change. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. You make an important point. It's like focus on and lead almost, I'd say, from the inside out 
from what's important. And if you do that, then the results will manifest appropriately. It's kind of like a Matthew 6 and 33 kind of concept that if you do what you're supposed to do today, you're focusing on God's business, let's say, then everything you need, food, shelter, and clothing will be provided. And unfortunately, if we focus on the bottom line first, we lose everything. We lose the bottom line and the other value that we were trying to create. Working on it from the outside in tends not to work. And so you're really articulating that in a very eloquent way. You see, when I think about business and life and family and everything else, God doesn't want our best. He wants his best for your business. So when you're moving and you're thinking for his best, where he's the owner, you know, you're not the owner. He's the owner. He owns it all. Your priorities start to shift and asking different questions. Lord, what will you have me to do? I'm in your presence. What's your will for my business? What's your will for my leadership? What's your will for my team, right? So you see, the first few years, I was trying to lead under my own skills and abilities and so forth. And they always fall short compared to what he would have. And I found that if I'm focused not on me, but others, right, and on him, man, I had great, great just satisfaction and thrill with serving him. And what would he have me to do? He would have me to love others. He would have me to invest in others. He would have me to care for others. He would have me to model great behavior. So, you know, we talk about it, integrity, honesty, characteristics, all that, right? So. Remember, God doesn't want our best for our business. I believe he wants his best for not only our business, but our life and our families and so forth. Amen to that, because, you know, who's in charge anyway? You know, And if we're in charge, it's a much smaller purpose we're fulfilling and nobody's going to see it anyway. It's not going to have the impact because God's visions are so great. They require God's power. And that's essentially what you're talking about. You're talking about receiving the power from God that's necessary to make great things happen on the earth that he wants to see happen. So I, I love that. And I, I think it's fabulous. I'm sure it's related to what I'm going to ask you next, which is this. You were so successful in this corporate realm and you were doing well and, and you were tested. The Tylenol scare was certainly a test. That was a big test. And you had to go through that. And then there were others, the Citibank crisis with the financial issues of the 80s. And so what prompted you to leave, let's say, some of those things that you were very good at, very successful at, and then to start Victoria's Family? You know, I wish I could sit here and tell you I had a plan. I wanted to do Victoria's Family and all this stuff. I had no plan. The way Victoria's Family really was, well, actually it happened a step in between there. I was head of all directors, all national accounts. So that's Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King, all that, who had, some of them have their own separate accounts. That is, is the largest uh, area of business for Coca-Cola Fountain. It's about two thirds of Coca-Cola company. But all of our reps were housed in the home office here downtown Atlanta. And to me, it made no sense. I want our reps as close to the customer as possible. And so we decentralized all national accounts and made four regions. And in doing so, that displaced me out of a row. <laughs> wow. But I had a plan. Okay. And that plan was I needed an international stint. And so what would it look like to go to South Africa or China? And at that time, South Africa in 1995 was coming out of apartheid. And they needed a leader. And, and the gentleman that was there was recruiting me saying, hey, come on over to South Africa. This thing is growing. In fact, South Africa now is the largest uh, beverage uh, bottling center in the world. They pour more soda out of that South Africa center than anywhere else in the world. And so that's, that was the opportunity, right? Coming out of apartheid, they needed someone to represent the organization or China. And so my wife said, I'm not, even, I'm not going to either. So, so I needed something to do, right? So we, ended, we had already opened up a franchise and, and it was doing, it was very successful. And so I needed a place because we had moved nine times in 11 years due to promotions. Uh, my wife wanted me to just be stable for about eight years so the kids can get through middle school and high school. So fortunately, we had this business going. So I was an entrepreneur. I tell you that story because I know the difference in signing the back of the check as well as signing the front of the check. 
you either kind of, you know, most people might experience a corporate or maybe an entrepreneur, but I've seen both. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly an odd duck because now I've been in the nonprofit world for 12 and a half years. So I have a kind of glimpse in all three areas. So what moved me, the standard answer would be the Lord moving me and preparing me the whole time. But it went in that time frame, I wasn't thinking, hey, I need to move out of this to go to this. I'm not going to staff app because the Lord has something for me. I'm thinking, what's the next opportunity? And what I realized today, when I look back, hindsight is 2020, the Lord was actually preparing me for one of the greatest crises that this nation will ever see, because I believe that no nation can thrive beyond its spiritual condition. And that spiritual condition starts in the home. Now, here's what started me. I was failing as the spiritual leader of my home. And most people say, wait a minute. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. I was a youth director at church. So, you know, my kids knew the Lord. They had, they were all saved, but they were not growing in their faith and we were not intentional. And I had abdicated discipleship to my wife and to the church. And most of us do that. And when we were being challenged, are the kids prepared to defend their faith or the, how are they growing in their faith? I didn't have an intentional plan. Now, you understand, at Coca-Cola, we wrote 45 minutes, billion-dollar plans, strategic plans to, to move our business forward. I mean, many of us are planners. We have a, we'll never think to start a church without a ministry plan. We would never think to start a business without a business plan. We wouldn't even think to go on vacation without a vacation plan. But every day, we try to raise our kids without a written spiritual development plan for your home. Less than 1% of Christians have a written spiritual plan to lead, guide, and direct their path to raise their kids. And guess who was falling in that, that same 99%? I was. And so my wife challenged me, are, you know, what are you going to do to be the spiritual leader of this home? You're discipling other kids, you're discipling other parents, but you're not discipling our kids. Come home with a plan and, and, <laughs> and tell us what you're going to do. So such a loving wife. Oh, she is because she was saving you and the family. Oh, man, it's like slap, slap upside the head. <laughs> you know, but this is powerful because the skills you were using at work, in essence, she was saying, we need some of that in this house, too. And I think it's a real easy scenario to happen for corporate leaders to get so focused at work, they forget some things at home. And that's why, you know, I started the show the way I started it. So, you were fortunate in that your wife was saying, we have an opportunity here and we need to do something different. Although she was challenging you personally as the man of the house. And we know that from a biblical perspective, if you go to Deuteronomy and various other places, and even in Ephesians, God is calling that father to do some things too. So let me ask this, why is it then that men struggle to take ownership of the spiritual leadership in their homes. We already know part of it was this busyness from work, but there are other pieces. What do you think the reason is for the struggle? Yeah, I always say transformation starts with us and that transformation needed to start in me. For me, I, I can tell you some other things I think apply, but I can just talk about my situation specifically. I was raised to be very independent, take charge, get things done. Yeah, I was stubborn as heck. I mean, I was like results oriented. I mean, I wanted to go after it, make a difference, all this crazy stuff. Uh, I was also, you know, I was a baseball player growing up. So, uh, you know, I was very competitive, right? And so when you think about when you're competitor, you want to win. Uh, you think about being recognized. You think about being successful. So for me, it was think of what's driving me, independent, want to be successful, want to be recognized, want to have those accolades, and you can get that in the marketplace. And then you come home and you're the garbage man. <laughs> hey, we don't care about all that. Just take out the garbage, clean the toilets, take care of the kids, change the diapers. <laughs> yeah. Where are we going to get our affirmation? So for men, we need affirmation. Everyone, by the way, needs affirmation. A lot of men, we find it in the marketplace. Some of them may not get it at home. So number one, we have to look at our, our human drivers. And I think there's three human drivers that for all of us. One, we have an intellectual driver. We have a physical driver. And third, we, should, we have a spiritual driver. If the 
intellectual and physical begin to outpace the spiritual driver to get off kilter. In our life, we need a balancing act where our spiritual driver is the main driver, then your intellectual, then your physical. Mm -hmm. So when your posturing and your alignment and things like that are off, then you're, you're in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And so for many of us, if we're building a business, especially, and we're in a high level position, executive position, guess what becomes our baby? Our business. Absolutely. And we can justify that. Mm -hmm. And what the Lord did with me is a transformation. He says, Terrence, I can't use you the way you're thinking and wired right now because you think it's about you. It's not about you. You can do nothing. And by the way, I looked up that nothing in Greek. It means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> not even a little bit. And I'm like, wait a minute, I can do something, right? We can do something. But, but he's saying from a, in terms of real transformation, we can do nothing without him. Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like? So I'm not teaching parents, for example, or leaders, you know, eight points to become a better parent. I don't have the eight points. You can get that mm -hmm. from another book. What I have is focus on the who, not the what. And once you focus on the who and what he's done, the love that you will connect with him will compel you to do. So Romans is right, but also James 1.5 is right. But I was being led by James 1.5 is what I did. I was trying to perform. I was trying to earn his favor. And I never can. And neither can you or anyone else. Absolutely. But once I turned that dial to say, well, let me focus on what he's done, his sovereignty, his grace, his mercy, his love. His... Now I fall madly in love with his son because he sent him for me and for you. I feel madly in love with that. And guess what? That compels me to do. It's a new motivator. It's more powerful. Again, it's inside out. And it's also the whole notion that, I mean, love is the most powerful force on the earth. And when we think about God is love and knowing that God is love and he created everything, created the whole universe and so on, the generative nature of love, the reproducing aspect of love is what we're really talking about. Absent that, there's everything else is going to pale in comparison. And so when Jesus boils down, you know, all the law into loving God with everything and loving your neighbor as yourself, it's because if you do, then you have the fuel, the energy, you know, for everything else that's quote in that law. So I love the fact that you say you start with who it's not just the what most people have a hard time doing the what if they're not connected to the love source and if they don't get the who and the being part right. So let's talk about that a little bit. How can families be more effective as they understand this love piece and the who being piece? Yeah. So one is, do we understand what we truly value? You know, I had a value list. Some have, you know, may not be Christian at all. Right? My, my grandfather, for example, valued education. And so therefore he, he wanted us to value education. And at that time, education was the way out. Right. And so he valued education. But you're looking at a man who could only go. He had a second grade education. His father passed. He became one, of, you know, back then farmers. He, he, need, he was needed on the farm more so than the school. And so all his life, he had a second grade education. They relocated up to Chicago for a better life, an opportunity. And he began to work for an airline, United Airlines. And as he progressed through that, he was really good with his hands. He could fix anything. He became an engineer with a second grade education. But they would try to hold him back because he didn't have a high school diploma. And so he said, you know, I'm going to get my high school diploma, but I'm not going to do the GED route. I'm going to set up a special arrangement because I want to show you guys how important education is. And I'm going to sit in an accelerated program and I'm going to go through the third, fourth, fifth grade all the way. I'm going to get my high school diploma. It took him years, but he finally finished his high school diploma and walked across the stage. Oh, amazing. You see, I could say he truly valued education. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? We value it as a result of saying that. We, we yeah. valued education, right? We thought, yeah. Right? Then I look at my father. He valued work ethic. He valued treating people, right? So when I look at parenting, I said, one, what are your real values? What do you truly value? And what do you truly value about your relationship with Christ? That's the who. Then I come back around. Well, if you value that, where are you taking them? What's the destiny? Well, in business, we just call that a vision statement. 
it's the destiny, it's the horizon where you're taking, right? Every business has a business statement. They have a destiny they're shooting for. And well, how you accomplish a vision and have a mission statement, right? And on and on, right? Do you have goals? Do you have life age and stage goals because you train a zero to five different than you train a 10 to 15 year old? Mm -hmm. Do we have those type of goals and mile markers set? And how do we know if we're making progress? You measure it. How are you going to measure discipleship? It's a very difficult thing. How they're growing in their faith. You know, Hebrews 6.1 saying move from milk to meat. How do you know you're getting towards that meat and they're maturing? And so we help families to frame out a strategic plan to be intentional in raising their kids up in the Lord. And we we just use Ephesians 6.4. We could use Deuteronomy in so many places. But Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, really speaking to parents, don't exasperate your child, which, you know, I, I can get an A plus in. I can frustrate them pretty good. But he says, bring them up in the training and instruction. Some says ammunition, but training and instruction of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Where's my focus? It's the Lord. That's the bullseye. It's relationship. And so in order to teach that relationship, I need the one teach them about relationship with him. But I also need to have a relationship with my kids and my spouse. So relationship is number one. What do I value about that relationship? What do I value about marriage? What do I value about raising kids? How do I continue to be intentional to nurture that relationship? And I found there's a lot of things I can list for you. And if I had to come up with one, I always tell parents to love well. Just love them well. Affirm them embrace them of course you're the parent parent them <laughs> right but love them well and know that the motivation in which you do what you do is predicated on love and mm -hmm. i tell you as they grow up they will become that relationship that you desire but you also must train them in the first love and that is in my opinion without that strong love for the father and who he is and what he's done. Everything else is skewed to a secular temporal love, which will not last. You know, I love what you are saying because basically children are going to learn what they experience. So when parents love the children well, as you're talking about, and when those loving parents who love the children also love each other, husband and wife, mother, father there, and when they are loving God, the children are experiencing it. They're not just hearing about it. I think that in a lot of families, Terrence, people think they have this, but what they really have is religion. They have a church relationship, maybe. They know about God. They don't necessarily know God. Give us some examples, maybe something practical, maybe something from what you and your wife have done with your family that illustrates what you're talking about, so it's tangible and people can see. Well, how does that look? Yeah. And, and quickly, I'll just share you with the results of some of that. 75% mm -hmm. of our kids are walking away from the church after they graduate from high school. Yes. And that's always kind of been a drift. But the difference, they would return mm -hmm. uh, once they had kids. Now they're not returning. So they don't trust the church. They don't trust the institution like they used to. So I'll give you that that kind of result if we don't do it. What's at stake? And worldview, by the way, is shaped between the ages of three and 14 years of age. Mm -hmm. So we have some tender moments there that we really need to take advantage of, right? Yeah. Some things we do, right? So we, we like to see three things happening within our planning process. And we want that plan to be customized and unique for your family. Mm -hmm. So what we provide is a framework of training. We don't tell you what to put in the plan, because if not, we'll have all Christianese in there. And all the plans right. look the same. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Yeah. Your family is different than my family. Okay. And it's unique. It has different values, different things, you know, different drivers, but there's some similarities in, in a Christian family or should be. Number one, that plan, wherever you're taking them, one, think about how is it God honoring? How we glorify him. That's our whole purpose. Secondly, is it Christ-centered? Is it Christ-centered? And thirdly, is it missional in scope? Because it's not always about you and your family. It's greater than that. Yeah. It's the Great Commission. Less than 3% of Christians today know how to share their faith. They've never been taught. 
How are we teaching our kids how to share our faith? How are we teaching our kids just to pray for other family members, intercessory prayer? How are we teaching? See, now, how does this link to business? Think about this now. If we teach our kids to really prioritize something greater than them and think about other people more so than themselves, and this whole idea of love and relationship versus a religion, all of a sudden now, what do we do in the marketplace? My father told me to do. Exactly. Full circle. Full circle. And, you know, I didn't have this thought when I was coming on, but I realized that Jesus was right. The core of it all is to love, love him, love. He already knew you're going to love yourself. He didn't give us love yourself. He just said, love your neighbor because as you would love yourself, because he already know you love yourself. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> the other warning is covetousness. Mm-hmm. We are a people that covet. We want what our neighbor have, or we want the next big job. We have to be content. So the other thing is teaching contentment, not complacency, but contentment with what he has given us to steward and to mm-hmm. shepherd. And he will lead and guide that process. So here's what we do. We say, come in, we're going to teach, we're going to give you a framework. Think about an iPhone or, or a smartphone. You get some apps in there and then you add the apps. So we give you some apps to get you started and then you add your own apps. <laughs> okay? okay. But we want to customize the plan. We want to help you flush out the values and vision and mission and goals and intercessory prayer and all of that. And then we disciple you along the way because everyone needs a coach. They need someone walking alongside, asking the tough questions, reinforcing the positives, et cetera. It's just like in business. We're going to reinforce the positive. We're going to ask some questions. We're going to have reviews. We're going to kind of motivate you along, inspire you along the way. But guess what? You have a greater purpose and the target and the bullseye has been defined. You see what I'm saying? God honoring Christ-centered mission and scope. What's the mission for your family? We will stop here for today with Terrence's very important question. What is the mission for your family? And that's something to think about between now and the next time when we will continue with part two of my conversation with Terrence Chapman, president and CEO of a wonderful company, Victorious Family. Here are a few points I want to summarize from today's part one episode. Number one, Terrence reminded us that everyone in your business organization has intrinsic value, and it's really about the people more than it is about the brand. In other words, the relationship is important. And because They were able to focus on the people and not worry so much about the brand. That's how Terrence was able to get through the Tylenol scare when he was working with Johnson & Johnson in Chicago. And it was his job to make that all work. And of course, his father had let him know doing the right thing is always the right thing, no matter what the consequences are. And so they prioritized people the health of people. And we heard that the brand therefore flourished as a result, even though it looked like in the short term, they were losing market share. So that's number one point. Number two, as a marketplace ministry leader, you can transform your marketplace. And particularly if you remember that you have a purpose that's greater than yourself, a purpose that's designed to impact others and to facilitate their leadership and to facilitate their growth. So it's really not about you. It's really about why God has you in the marketplace and how he plans to use your gifts, your talents, and your placement for his glory and for his benefit. And then number three, God wants his best for you, not your best for you. His best for you is always the best, and God always empowers and resources what his best decision is for you. So it's our job to be in relationship with God, be in front of God to figure out what does that best actually look like. And what I want you to keep in mind is that everything 
Terrence said that applied to the business environment. First, those same principles apply to the family. So when you think about your children, every one of your family members, every one of your children also has intrinsic value. And it's about each of them as an individual person, each of them as members of the collective family. And you want to cultivate the kind of relationship that allows you to impact their lives to make a difference in how they lead in society, how they live in society, so that ultimately you are part of developing God's best for each one of your children. And we mean starting early from young ages and continuing through high school and college, because the foundation you laid earlier, you want to continue to build on it so that your child has a relationship with God that stands the test of time and goes the distance. So you can leave and live a powerful leadership legacy, both at work and also at home in the family. So next time, Terrence is going to share with us some more specific strategies, a roadmap for discipling your children so that they do persist in their Christian faith, even as they leave home. So stay tuned next time when we're going to get down to some of the brass tacks of what does it really take to make sure that your children believe and are able to defend their faith. In the meantime, ask yourself, do your children believe? Do they have what it takes to defend their faith? And how are you discipling them now? So I'd like to close today's segment with a Bible verse that's very important to the Victorious Family Organization, and that's Ephesians 6, and it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's Ephesians 6, 4. So we'll take a closer look at what it means to bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord next time. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.